Terry Balper, the team of Nebraska, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Monday. It's his weekly Monday appearance, and he has made it on a Monday. Managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest and on this edition of the program, as he does every week. Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball of particular note. In this case, the winter meetings occurred last week. It's a strange event, one which both Cameron and I attended, and here we contend with some of the flotsam and also a bit of the jetsam uh, regarding last week's winter meetings. For example, the signing by the Angels of Shoei Otani. Uh, Cameron addresses the particular challenges both Otani and the Angels will face in 2018 and beyond. Also, what the addition both of Zach Cozart and Ian Kinsler, in addition to Otani, uh, what all that does for the club's postseason odds. Uh, we also discuss uh, the Marcelo Ozuna trade from Miami to St. Louis, uh, where that trade ranks within the recent history of bad trades. Not great, uh, is Dave Cameron's basic assessment. Uh, also, the logic, or at least uh, to the degree that Cameron sees logic in it, uh, in Philadelphia's decision to sign Carlos Santana, a move which, in a vacuum, uh, is not bad because Carlos Santana is a good player, but one uh, which, in the context of Philadelphia's place, maybe on the win curve, perhaps it's the win curve, uh, why that may not make sense. Also pushes Reese Hoskins to left field. Anyway, uh, uh, all of that. Also, Dave Cameron recounts for listeners what he says to someone who has over 500 of something. Hey, good job. You got over 500. Good example of Dave Cameron's warmth right there. Uh, we will move on to a conversation with that same managing editor momentarily. What I would like to do now, both because it is my pleasure and also my professional obligation, I'd like to uh, simply state that Fangraphs memberships exist for a reasonable sum. Readers of Fangraphs.com can support the great work that occurs, that appears in those electronic pages uh, by acquiring an, uh, a membership. And for a slightly less reasonable sum, what, what those same readers can do if they so choose, is to acquire an ad-free membership, which allows one to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads, not only facilitating faster loading speeds, but also liberating one from the distortive effects of advertising. Fangraphs membership and ad-free membership, available at Fangraphs.com. Browsing one's internet browser, pointing one's internet browser to Fangraphs.com, and then clicking and finding the a link for memberships. Is how one does it. Okay, uh, now let's move on to our conversation. What is it? Is Fangraphs Audio? Who does it feature? Managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. something really nice are you not in that same position no i could go over to the couch because there's carpet over there if you think that'll make a difference no you're fine right now where are you sitting though what are you sitting against i'm sitting in a chair at a table kitchen table the dining room table okay what, is it, what sort of decorations you got on the walls in that dining room pictures of my kid yeah i guess that's fair i was just wondering if there's anything to absorb noise uh, I mean, I could go closer to the Christmas tree, and then you could get the <laughs> wonderful smell of pine. What foot? Uh, fur. How... I guess Christmas trees are fur. Yeah, that's fine. Well, how high? How high of a Christmas tree did you get? Six feet. Yeah. It's, okay. Yeah. Maybe it's seven. Did you cut your own? We went into the woods with some friends, uh, who you know, because out here you just pay five dollars and you go cut down any tree you want. So we went and did that, and then my wife said, "These are ugly." 
So we didn't actually cut one down. They all cut one down. We helped them carry their trees back, and then we drove to a lot, and she picked out a, you know. So you participated in someone someone else's uh, charming holiday experience, and then exactly. you went and we got all the uh, the good memories of like trudging through the snow with our dogs and uh-huh. cider and like the whole thing, and then also we spent sixty dollars for a. PED fueled <laughs> Christmas tree, the, the Brett Boon of Christmas trees. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Very good. Uh, well, that sounds that sounds fine. That's I guess that's one. That's the way to do it. We just bought. We only bought a three foot tree. I did not realize. I did not. Re- so at the place we went, they they sold they sold three foot. I guess maybe we bought four foot. But they sold them categorized by foot, and I did not realize that was the tag the the sort of. Um, how, to, how one taxonomizes trees. But I believe they were Douglas firs, maybe? Yeah, that's a, Doug- that's a kind of fir. It was a small one, though. Yeah. You know. What do you think? Yeah. you think there would be much work to to uh, own a Christmas tree farm? I think it would be a lot of work. You do? Yeah. We have a – I wouldn't call him a friend, an acquaintance who's a helicopter pilot. And mm. so, like, during the summer, he, like – you know, fights fires and, you know, goes and oh. throws water on those forest fires and then, like, does, like, search and rescue and, like, pulls people out of rivers and stuff. But in November, their fires are generally extinguished. Sorry, California. I know that you know, that's a little rough on you. But normally, there's not fires to fight and there's not people in rivers. So what he does is he goes and just flies helicopters over these Christmas tree farms all day, every day, it extracts bundles of Christmas trees from the middle of nowhere where these Douglas firs grow. And uh, apparently it takes a long time to get those trees out of the middle of nowhere. So there's there's uh, quite a bit of labor associated with the... I think it's a, you know, I don't think hiring an expensive helicopter pilot and telling him to bring his own helicopter is cheap. Yeah, that's true. All right. Um, Cameron, I saw you recently at the winter meetings in Orlando, Florida. I guess specifically... Yeah. Did I make you sick? No, you did not. But apparently, uh, I tried, you've, tried my best. You've infected some some of our colleagues, uh, uh, or at least they claim to, or at least uh, you are the scapegoat. Dave no, Cameron. I think it's legitimate. I was hacking up a lung all week in Orlando. Right. We uh, we saw each other, um, and just a couple of observations from that before we turn to uh, quite a quite a packed agenda here, Dave Cameron, um, because. There are events uh, of some currency with re- in terms of uh, baseball. But uh, we met – we did something that surprised me is that we met actual humans who listened to this program, um, which, which was uh, – uh, I did not expect to, to do. Um, some of them who I, I know for a fact, many of their hours are already accounted for uh, in the employ uh, – because they are in the employ of Major League Baseball teams. Yeah, they work a lot. They yeah, don't ha- they don't have many hours to give. No, and some of they've uh, clearly there's not uniformly intelligent people because they've invested some of their free time unwisely. Um, so that's too bad. Now, one of those people, I didn't, I'm not really in a position to name names for all of them, but one of them is a former employee of Fangraphs.com, current employee of the Milwaukee Brewers. That's uh, August Fagerstrom. We did run into uh, good old August. Yeah, what a good boy he is. He's cut his hair. That was always a matter of some interest with regard to him, but he looks like a good boy now. Very who's much. A, who's a better boy, August or America? Well, America's a girl, but in terms of wow. uh, being good dogs. I know, but like the phrase, what a good boy, is almost boy, exclusively yeah. res- reserved for yeah. dogs. August is a good boy. Yeah, August is a, is a well-behaved boy. America's not a well-behaved dog. So. <laughs> but um, 
She has her own virtues. The best uh, part is like August is almost certainly listening to this. Yeah. Hi, August. Well, what, what August? What August identified was that <laughs> the most recent recording we did for <laughs> the most recent edition of the podcast. <laughs> we recorded really just before Shoei Not Otani. just before. We recorded several days. Before no, 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 no. We recorded no more than two days before Shoei Otani signed with the Angels, but I was not able to <laughs> fully edit the program until the day after. But I constructed both the title and the introduction of the program to make it uh, somewhat ambiguous, I think, um, or to at least give you credit for for laying out the wisdom, the the logic for Otani's decision in signing, and also uh, maybe in in highlighting some of the steps that the Angels were, uh, took in order to sign Otani. Right, but you apparently did not make it explicitly clear that we recorded before Otani signed. Well, so August, who I think we we both would agree is very sharp, very yeah. observant. He sussed uh, it out. Yes, he did, but not right at the beginning. So I have to think that. <laughs> he fooled him for a few minutes, and then, yeah. and then somewhere along the line, he's like, "They're pulling the wool over my eyes." Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that's what he did. But so uh, perhaps we should begin with Otani. He actually he did sign with the Los Angeles Angels. Um, now, from the before that event, you had maintained, from your point of view, that it probably made sense for Otani to sign with a National League club because he could pitch, yeah. and then um, if they needed him to. Uh, to bat, of course, he could he could pinch it all the time. Yeah. He could hit for himself when he's pitching. Yeah, um, and he would not have his offense would not be compared to in the you know as it will be in the American League would not be compared to designated hitters. Um, uh, of course, they don't have that position in the National League, but it would be con- but it would be compared to pitchers, and he really would not need that many plate appearances if he were to bat just as well as Madison Bumgarner. Right. He would be. He would probably be worth a win or two in like what, like a hundred, hundred fifty plate appearances. Yeah, I mean, I think the reality is like National League teams waste at bats on terrible hitting pitchers, and especially now that teams are carrying like eight man bullpens and so they have very limited benches. We actually see it's like somewhat common now, like in the early parts of the game where it's not a high leverage at bat, teams will just send other pitchers up there to pinch hit. Like they don't want to waste one of their good pinch hitter, their only good pinch hitter, in the fifth inning of the game. So if their pitcher is not going to make it deep. Like, they'll have it at bat come around and be like, ah, Travis Wood, why don't you go hit this time? And so, like, National League teams are just throwing at bats away um, on guys who can't hit. American League teams don't have that problem. Like, you know, the the relative idea of a guy who can't hit in the American League is Chris Carter, or someone who would be, like, the best hitting pitcher possible. And people are like, yeah, this guy's worth, you know, $2 million in a bench job. Um, and that's kind of, like, replacement level at DH in the American League. So, Otani, to, to go with the Angels... Not only does he have to like out hit Albert Pujols, but he also has to out hit Albert Pujols enough, or CJ Crone or whoever the guy who isn't playing, to also justify like Pujols has to play the field that day. And right. so now there's increased injury risk of your 36 year old who can't run trying to like catch the ball and run around and play defense. And I mean, you could actually argue that like if he injures Albert Pujols, maybe that's a net positive to the team, and that they wouldn't have to play Albert Pujols anymore. Maybe that's yeah. their secret strategy here. Uh, but I think. You're, you're looking at like a fairly high baseline of like Otani has to hit significantly better than this. And you know, like there's the reality of like Otani, um, is a left-handed batter, so he's not gonna have the platoon advantage, uh, in every start. And because of how controlled his, um, 
schedule has to be. Like, he can't start, you know, the day before he pitches and the day after he pitches. So you're looking at, like, a couple of midweek games. If you just happen to run into, like, a team with left-handed starting pitchers, like, say you have a series against the Red Sox and they're running Sale and Eduardo Rodriguez and Drew Pomeranz at you, you know, what do you do if those are Otani's days to DH? You promised him he's going to get a DH at bats, and then here come three tough lefties. Like, do you, are you really going to start Shohei Otani at DH against three lefties just because you told him he was going to get at bats? That doesn't seem like a very good idea. Well, it doesn't make that that right. On the one hand, you the team would be making good on a promise, um, which is one way to preserve a good relationship with the player. Obviously, on the other hand, they would probably be doing a disservice, a bit of a disservice to Otani in terms of performance. Although, surely as a player, uh, he has you know he has some sort of confidence in himself that he can handle left-handed pitchers. But also, they're doing a disservice to the team, a team which. It should be noted has many right-handed batters, as uh, Travis Sawchuk noted today, and really could benefit uh, from using, from leveraging any left-handed batters they have. Luis Valbuena is another one who could also uh, play first base, uh, maybe third in a pinch. Yeah. Um, um, uh, who uh, so any left-handed batters they have, m- and making sure that they employ them as efficiently as possible. But if, uh, as you note, if Otani's pitching schedule prevents them from doing that, then there's what? There's kind of, uh, there's runs left on the table then. Yeah, and I think, you know, the reality is they might be more willing to play him at the beginning of the season when they're trying to figure out what he is offensively and what his upside is. At the end of the year, like if, you know, it's July and Otani is racked up 100 or 150 at bats, you know, or August maybe. Um, and, you know, the Angels are in the race, but they're not guaranteed a playoff spot. And Otani has a, 85 WRC plus, and he's getting eaten alive by left-handers, which I think is a very reasonable expectation for a rookie who struck out a lot in Japan. Like, uh, you know, I, I think it's perfectly reasonable to expect that Otani is going to be a low on base slugger. Um, you know, at least right now. Like, in a few years, he might develop into more than that, but I think right now he's probably a, you know, a guy who can hit the ball really far and is going to strike out a ton. So. How about Randall Grichuk as a comp? I mean, he'll strike out more than Grichuk, I think. Like, mm. I think it's, you know, like, you're you're kind of hoping that the upside is Joey Gallo, and Joey Gallo was pretty good last year. But Joey Gallo has also had some not good stretches where like he, he was a pretty easy out, and um, I mean that's probably what you're kind of like looking at is like best case scenario here is like the, the 80 power carries the flaws in the rest of the game. Right. Um, so you know if like say Otani with like the DH penalty and only hitting a couple times a week and you know adjusting to new leagues and being pitched differently, say he's running an 85 WRC plus in August. Like, at what point does Mike Joseph just say, like, this isn't worth it? Like, I'm paying some penalty in your pitching performance to having you hit, probably. I mean, we don't know for sure, but, like, we think this is probably going to make you worse. We're running a six-man rotation in order to accommodate your schedule. Uh, you know, we're running you out there, and you're not an offensive upgrade over the other guys we have who are, you know, legitimate major league players. Like, C.J. Cron is a, you know, C.J. Cron, skill set-wise, not that different from Otani. Like, it's significant power with questionable plate discipline. Like... Um, I don't know that this experiment's going to last into the end of the season if the Angels are in contention and Otani's not crushing the ball. Where in the National League, like, there's always going to be at-bats for Otani. There would have always been at-bats for Otani because those teams are just throwing at-bats away on guys who just can't hit at all. And the, the the pressure on the bat would have been considerably less. Right. I mean, like, if Otani's, like, hitting 170 but occasionally runs into a home run, that's still better than what you're getting from your pitchers. Like, right. at least, it's like, there's some hope and some excitement when he goes up there. If he's hitting 170 and running into some home runs but he's your DH, everyone hates it. It's it's a just totally different thing. <clears throat> but obviously, Shoei Otani picked the Angels. Yeah. 
And uh, while it's possible that it's, you know, in part because the Angels had – they had one of the larger bonuses to offer, right? Yeah, I mean, they offered him $2.5 million. The Rangers and Mariners could have given him $3.5 million, but, like, still, it's $2.5 million. Like, still $2.5 you know, million. They could offer him $200,000 more or $2 million more than the National League teams could have offered him, but I can't imagine that Otani made his decision based on $2 million. Right. So what do you think was his logic? Or what do you know is his logic? Well, no one really knows. Like, uh, Otani made this decision – you know, kind of by himself, and like you know, um, his the press conference he gave were the pretty generic answers. Uh, there's some speculation out there that like Mike Trout was the main reason. Like he, he Otani has stated he wants to be the best player in the world. Why not go play with the best player in the world? And then you can measure yourself against that guy every day, and you can learn from him, and you can you know potentially say, okay, I'm gonna just copy Mike Trout. That's not there's worse things in the world. And to do. and if if it turns out that you're the second best player. Well, the guy that you need to murder to become yeah, the right. first best one. Keep your enemies close. He's right. He's right there. Yeah. Yeah. Although I would I, not – I like to be given the task of attempting to murder Mike Trout, especially right. if he's in sort of hand-to-hand combat. I imagine like if you tried to like inject something into his neck, like some kind of poison, his yeah. neck would just like spit it back out at you. He's <laughs> impervious to needles. Yeah, no, um, he's actually – yeah. He's a, he's a government uh, fighting – That's right. Uh, so I think you know we, that's one theory. The other theory – is like he just liked LA. Um, like, you know, he did post up in Los Angeles for two weeks and make teams come to him there. So it could have just been like while he was there, he was like, this place is neat. Disneyland. Now, people people who live in the region would want you to make a distinction immediately, which is the fact that he signed for the team that plays in Orange County, not yeah, Los Angeles. It's the same thing. <laughs> okay, that's, yeah, when you're entitled to that opinion as well, I'm just <laughs> attempting to give voice to the people of the region. Okay, I mean, well, I detest maybe it all, he liked so the idea of living in Southern California. But okay, not no. so Southern California that he was playing for the Padres. So like mid, mid Southern California. Right. Um, and you know, the Dodgers didn't really have at bats for him. Um, you know, if he wanted to play a position, you know, not that the DH isn't a position, but if he was like, well, I don't really want to just pinch hit every day, but I want to like be in the starting lineup. And so he was going to choose an AL team, you know, and you could like see some, some logic if he just decided the pinch hitting for the pitcher to get his at bats isn't what he wanted him to do. Hey, now here's a question. Uh, after signing Shohei Itani, um, the uh, the Angels conducted what no fewer than two trades, or no, sorry, no fewer than big uh, than two big acquisitions. One of them for Zach Cozart to play third base, uh, at least average defensive shortstop Zach Cozart, perhaps slightly above average defensive shortstop. Yeah, Cozart's a good defensive shortstop. Yeah, and you so one assumes that he will be even a better third baseman. Yeah, I mean he's going to be graded relative to worse peers. So right. And then uh, Sokozar, and then they traded for uh, Ian Kinsler. They did. Would they first of all would they have conducted those trades had they not acquired Shoetani? Probably. Yeah. I mean, I think the Angels were l- trying to get better this year, regardless, because they still had Mike Trout, they had you know Garrett Richards, and they have you know some guys who are kind of win now types. And when you have Mike Trout in his prime, you should either turn him into the greatest trade return anyone's ever seen or win. <laughs> you shouldn't just hang around 80 wins forever. Um, and so I think, you know, like Kinsler was obviously available and had a no trade clause and apparently would only waive it to go to the Angels. So they they were kind of uniquely positioned to get him for not a lot of money uh, and not a Why, lot of talent. Is he, uh, sorry, is he a native of the area or something along this line? 
uh, it's possible. I don't. Okay. I don't. I did not prepare to answer Ian Kinsler's. No, and uh, I didn't. Place yeah, of birth. I did not even know I was going to ask you the question until yeah. moments ago. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he might have just said uh, he. You know, he's familiar with the AOS from his years in Texas. I don't know why Kinsler wanted to go to the Angels, but he did. So, so he waived his no trade to only go to the Angels. So they traded him to the Angels, and Zach Cozart was unfortunate to have his career year at a year when um, most of the contenders don't need shortstops. So, like, if you looked at the teams that were bidding on shortstops in free agency this winter, it was the Padres, who then just traded for Freddie Galvis. And that's about it. Like, they're just start that, like, you know, the, the big spenders, the teams that you'd be like, oh, this team could use a, a win-now, three-win player. Like, they don't, they didn't need what Zach Kozer was selling. Right. What did, to, to, uh, obviously, the positional... Uh, adjustment right for the two positions. Shortstop is what, uh, plus seven and a half over hundred. Was it one hundred fifty, one hundred sixty-two games, whatever. One hundred fifty. Yeah. That's the generic yeah. positional adjustment. The positional adjustment for third baseman is plus two and a half. Yeah. So, so which is to say, if a third baseman played exactly, you know, was uh, earned um, an ultimate zone rating figure of exactly zero. Uh, in 150 games, he he would be worth two and a half runs defensively. Yeah. Uh, from is that now empirically speaking, is this from when we know that players who've played shortstop when they move to third base that they um, they are worth plus five runs defensively? It's not just guys who move positions. Like obviously, there are some guys, uh, career third baseman who we think could play shortstop who have never moved. Like we've never seen Adrian Beltre or Nolan Arenado play shortstop, so we can't say for sure what they would be. But we have seen guys like Machado kind of bounce back and forth, or at least play a little bit at each position. Um, but we also see a, there's a lot of utility guys who play both spots, right? So um, it's not just the moving back and forth. It's guys who play both positions um, within the same. Uh, year or within one year to the next year where you can look at and be like, they're probably still roughly similar in physical skills. What you don't want to do is like look at a guy who played shortstop when he was 24 and then, you know, moved to third base when he was 33 and be like, oh, look at what he did here because then you're dealing with a different player. But there are enough guys who play both positions within the same year or within one year to the next that you can kind of look at it and say, yeah, you know, like based on the empirical data, Guys at third base are just a little bit worse than shortstops, and that makes sense because most short third basemen are former shortstops who just didn't quite have the range for it and had a good enough arm and were tall enough and hit for enough power to kind of profile up the position. But I think there's a lot of major league third basemen who could be passable shortstops. Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah, I'll consent to that. Uh, yeah. With regard to so with regard to the Angels, uh, we also add to that uh, the re-signing. I guess the re-signing of or, or extension of Justin Upton. Yep. Um, which means uh, add Mike Trout to that. I, I guess what the um, their off-season dealings appear to have put them in a good place. The projections suggest I think the second wild card spot. Uh, what does, we don't have an Otani production yet. We don't have an Otani. What does your heart say, Dave Cameron? Four what wins. does your heart slash mind say? Oh, so four wins for him. But I think oh. we don't we don't necessarily know because uh, Otani apparently had a, a PRP injection in his elbow not that long mm-hmm. ago, and he has a slight uh, tear in his UCL or a strain or whatever. Um, you know, a lot of pitchers have elbow problems. Doesn't mean that Otani is definitely going to get hurt, but it does add some. Like they were already going to be cautious with his workload. I would I would not be shocked if like Otani actually started the year on the disabled list, just as like they were working him up in spring training. Like there's no real reason to rush him to opening day, so it wouldn't be it wouldn't shock me if like Otani only made like one or two starts in April. He had a PRP injection. Uh, uh, what do you think? Of what What do you think? We know, we know that what's what platelet rich. Uh, 
plasma. Yeah, plasma. What would a BRB, uh, a B right back injection, be? Do you think? Um, I mean, it would probably be some of your DNA, where they like said, yeah. "Okay, how do we procrastinate and put up a podcast after it's relevant?" Yeah. Yep. Thanks for that. Um, I was reading today a line from Emil Chor, and I, I translated a little bit of this uh, French slash Romanian philosopher the other day. Um, um, he, I was. Uh, the translation was: uh, Every friendship uh, is a is an invisible drama, is a is a series of subtle injuries. And I thought of you, Dave Cameron. <laughs> friendship that's a series of subtle injuries. I think that's really. Um... I'm going to aspire to that. Maybe, okay. And maybe make some of the injuries a little less subtle. Mm-hmm. Okay, well done. Uh, you've, uh, we just discussed uh, the sort of um, the player, the fielding, the positional adjustments between shortstop and third base. Uh, a, a, th- a, cur- a player who currently plays largely third base, but uh, is probably capable of shortstop as well, is Manny Machado. Uh, two posts on the site today, which is Monday. The uh, two posts on the site today... Uh, about Manny Machado, Paul Swiden looked at the um, what the historical implications of a Manny Machado trade would be. Turns out, not too many players who've accomplished so much in so little time have been traded. Why would they be? Uh, they're typically cost controlled, um, and typically are not reaching free agency as young as he is. Um, uh, but he's, of course, he's very good. So he start, he uh, debuted very early. And uh, now you've written about his trade value, a post which I have not had the pleasure of reading, Dave Cameron. Uh, what do you need? What do you need to say about uh, Manny Machado's trade value? It's not what you think it is. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, you know, like obviously, people reading Fangraphs are probably a little more in tune with surplus value and kind of the way that we value players in terms of trade assets. Um, and I think Major League Baseball has certainly gone that direction. Not that every trade is perfectly efficient, but like we see fewer of these insane trades than we used to. Mm-hmm. But some of the deals that are being thrown out there in the media are. Bananas. Like, <laughs> uh, Nick Cafardo's, uh, Xander Bogarts and Eduardo Rodriguez and a prospect. Like, that's, it's maybe worse than the Dansby Swanson trade. <laughs> like, it's, uh, you could at least argue, like, well, if I the Red Sox are in a position to, like, capitalize on the value they're getting and the Diamondbacks weren't. But, you know, just in terms of ridiculous overpays, like, mm-hmm. you know, like, I'm not one who thinks that you need to, like, make every decision based on surplus value, and, like, if you're a million dollars over the line, that means it's a win, and if you're a million under, it's a loss, like, obviously there's other factors that you want to look at when you factor in, you know, should we trade for this guy, um, but if you're, like, off by 50 million, you, th- those other factors aren't worth 50 million, like, there's, you should at least look at it kind of as a framework and say, are we anywhere close in terms of value? Uh, because, you know, like, the reality is, like, if the Red Sox, you know, really did decide, you know what, we need to get as bet- as, as good as we can this year, and mm-hmm. we can trade Bogarts and Rodriguez in order to do it, given the demand for young pitching and young position players, controllable guys, even though Bogarts isn't, like, super controllable, two years left, he's not a free impending free agent, like, these guys would be uh, instantly two of the most valuable guys out there. And, you know, I think you can argue that, like, Bogarts is in that Marcelo Zuna class of players. Um, and, you know, Ozuna, I think, has similar trade value to, to Xander Bogart or to, to Manny Machado. Like, when I ran the poll last week, it was basically split between which of those two you'd rather have, one year of Machado or two years of Ozuna. So when you start, like, packaging those guys together, 
um, it just doesn't make any sense. And so I think like the this public perception from you know maybe a beat writer perspective or you know a casual fan perspective of like we should give up one of our good young players or two of our good young players and some prospects. We should give up Addison Russell plus. Like teams have moved beyond these valuations. They're not going to do that. Manny Machado is not going to get you Alex Reyes and Carson Kelly and Jack Flair. Like, no one's going to make these trades. Like, look at what the Marlins got for Ozuna. The Orioles could do a little bit better because they're not run by Derek Jeter, but they're not going to do a lot better. Yeah, well, so first of all, yeah, I had an opportunity. How many more years on Ozuna's contract? Two. Two, okay, all right. And what, the best player from that, I guess, was Sandy, was three players, Sandy Alcantara, Zach Allen, and... and Sierra. Oh, right, Magnera Sierra, right. Uh, uh, Which, for the record, I think, like, uh, Magnera Sierra isn't any better than Leonis Martin, and Leonis Martin signed for $2 million this winter. And a similar player to Leonis Martin, I think, is maybe also... I mean, you know, if you look at, like, you know, Leonis Martin is legitimately a plus defensive center fielder who can't really hit all that well. Mm -hmm. Magnera Sierra, we don't even know if he's a plus defensive outfielder. He's just really fast. So you could think that he could be if you can teach him to play center field a little bit better. But he played a lot of left field in the minors. Like, if he's a questionably plus defensive center fielder who can't hit... Like, these are really easy to get. This is like a super common skill set that's readily available. Um, you know, if if your upside is Leonis Martin and Leonis Martin was DFA'd twice last year, that's not great. Yeah, yeah. Mar- uh, Martin, as you note, uh, has not had necessarily a lot of success at the plate. However, you know, if you prorate his career numbers to, you know, say 600 plate appearances per season – he he is he comes out as like an average player, slightly right? Above but I think this is one of those cases where, if you wanted to make an argument that like teams can get above replacement level p- returns or above replacement level performance for not much more than replacement level salary, like yeah. this is the skill set that is readily available. You can go right. get fly catching center fielders who can't hit cheaply, and they can put up one to one and a half WAR, and that's kind of what you're hoping Magnera Sierra might become. Right, and, and, and a that's, player, and that's like one of the primary pieces you got back from Marcelo Zuna. Right, yeah, yeah, right, and then not, guess, not good, Jeets. And uh, <laughs> well, there was uh, pressure. I mean, pressure, internal pressure, I guess, right? To, um, I to, mean, they had to move Stanton from a money perspective. They didn't have to move Ozuna. Like, they, if they, if this was the best they could have done, they could have just kept him. What's the what's the logic then? Just to get to get salary off the payroll, whatever the I cost. Mean, I think you the the general argument is that they think Alcantara and Sierra are you know really good prospects because they have one carrying tool. So Alcantara throws 100 miles an hour and Sierra is legitimately an 80 runner. So mm-hmm. if you've got you know one of the fastest guys in baseball and one of the hardest throwing guys in baseball, and you're overly obsessed with physical skills, you could probably talk yourselves into these guys being really valuable. If you want to like actually look at just like performance and how these guys have done relative to other prospects of you know. Um, maybe guys who don't throw 100 or run quite as fast, but can hit mm-hmm. or, you know, can strike guys out. Like, I think you, you could make a case that, like, the Marlins just overpaid for tools here. Yeah. Uh, are the Marlins... So a couple of years ago, obviously, the Diamondbacks made some questionable decisions um, in the offseason. Yeah. Uh, the uh, The front office appears to have... Well, obviously, it's changed, um, and it appears to have... Now resemble more. Uh, this has gone in the direction most other organizations have gone, which is um, 
a you know more analytical, which is say a blend a blend of the two. But to, I mean, to of use... course, scouts are still important. No one's saying yeah. you should just go with the numbers, but you shouldn't not have numbers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and you can have a sense of what the you know how the, what the tools what they become at the major league level. Uh, do they appear to the Mar- the Marlins appear to be sort of the um, uh, whatever the opposite of the cream of the crop is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the chaff the of the crop. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, that, I mean, I think, we don't yeah, have a like, huge but, sample at this point. But. Yeah, so we don't like you know. We, I think it's it's tough to judge the Marlins just based on their transactions. You know, like the, I actually think the D Gordon trade was just fine for them. Like they they did okay there. Um, I thought the Stanton trade was actually fine. Like they got a lot of. Crap for Giancarlo Stanton, but given that he had full no trade veto powers and basically said I will only go to one of these four teams, they didn't have a lot of leverage there. I thought they did fine for Stanton, realistically. Like it sucks that they had to move him from a, you know, cash flow standpoint, and it's lame that they're not going to reinvest the savings in the team, so that's not good for the fan base. But just from like a baseball standpoint, they did fine on the Stanton trade. The other mm-hmm. one was a disaster. Um, and doesn't suggest that they're valuing talent correctly. Um, but it, you know, every team makes one bad trade. Like a lot of teams who are smart make bad trades. So like, I wouldn't say just based on the evidence we have from these three trades that they're clearly poorly run. But I do think we can see, uh, kind of the goings on, not necessarily just in transactions, but like, so uh, a couple of years ago, they hired a guy named Jason Perret from the Blue Jays to ramp up their analytics department. Uh, I have heard very good things about Jason's work, and that was uh, an encouraging sign for the Marlins that they were moving in that direction. Um, not that long ago, Jason Perret left the Marlins to take a job with the Braves, and he went and became their assistant GM and is going to oversee our uh, research and development for Atlanta. Like uh, Losing a guy like that right after Jeter comes in um, is not a good look for the organization, and you know, coupled with the transactions they're making, suggests there's probably not a large analytical influence on on the organization at the moment. Right. Okay. Uh, now we got here um, talking about uh, Machado, I guess. D- uh, d- do you, are there any sort of reasonable landing spots for Machado? Yeah. I mean, St. Louis gets talked about a lot just because they've, they clearly tried to trade for Giancarlo Stanton. They've basically made it clear that their goal this winter is to just add star level players. Uh, they want to consolidate above average big leaguers into, you know, well above average big leaguers. So By the way, I, we just uh, published the zips projections for the Cardinals today yeah. and they have, they have so much depth. Yeah. Uh, they, they have, have like a, just a bunch of guys who are you know one to three war players. Yeah, and more than they more than you could fit in a twenty five man roster. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, so they're yeah. looking at guys that like you know Jack Flaherty. I think right now is their sixth starter. Um, they didn't. They obviously didn't want to include him in the Ozuna trade. They might not want to include him in a Machado trade. But like the, Jack Flaherty is an above average major league pitcher right now. Yeah. Uh, by the projections, at least. Yeah. And they don't have room for him. <laughs> like, they don't have innings for him. Like, you're going to end up using your sixth starter some, but they don't have a opening day rotation spot for this guy. And he would be. And that's Orioles. without your, and that's without including Alex Reyes in the, right. in the, in the team. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, like, he would be the Orioles second or third best pitcher right now. <laughs> and so, like, you look at, like, what the Cardinals have. It's like they have surplus of quality big leaguers who aren't stars, but they don't necessarily have that carrying guy. Ozuna helps, but I still don't know if Ozuna's quite at that level. Um, so a guy like Machado would make a lot of sense for them just in terms of consolidating value into one roster spot. Um, 
you know, if you can turn Jed Jerko into Manny Machado and, you know, it costs you one other thing that you maybe you weren't going to use this year, that's a substantial upgrade. Obviously, people are talking to, like, Boston and, you know, some of these other contenders. doesn't make quite as much sense because a lot of contenders are actually pretty well set at shortstop and third base. Like, that's one of the reasons why Zach Kozert found a limited market. Um, so I think the Orioles are actually, like, in a little bit of a tough spot in the sense of, like, You'd love to get the Dodgers involved, but they have Justin Turner and Corey Seager. You'd love to get the Cubs involved, but they have Chris Bryant and Addison Russell. You'd love to get, you know, the Yankees involved, but Peter Angelos won't let him go there. So, like, you're eliminating some of the teams who have the incentive to most overpay. So then you're left with, you know, some rational teams who say, you know, it's just a one year. We like Machado a lot, but, you know, we're potentially a wild card team like the Cardinals. How much are we really willing to give up for one year? Uh, where we think we might just get to the wild card game, and if we lose that game, then Machado leaves, and you know we just gave up 15 years of value for the hope that we could win our win a coin toss game. So mm-hmm. um, I do think that the there's not one spot where you say this is the perfect fit. This is clearly the best option for the Orioles trade with this team. There are a bunch of teams that are like decent enough fits that you can probably get some you know reasonable offers, but I don't see. Uh, you know, like, J.D. Martinez for the Red Sox is, like, the most obvious fit possible. Like, you know, Dombrowski wants power. J.D. Martinez has a lot of power. It's pretty clear that, like, if possible, Dave Dombrowski is going to sign J.D. Martinez. And you can think, like, this is a great opportunity for Martinez to get paid a lot of money. There's no similar suitor for Machado that you could look at and be like, this is a guy who's just going to pay whatever the Orioles want. Okay. Uh, uh, we, we've passed the 30-minute threshold, but I do want to uh, bring this up. Yeah. <clears throat> You mentioned obvious suitors. Uh, the Phillies were not uh, – Philadelphia Phillies entering the offseason were not I, – I don't think they were not obvious suitors for any of the top free agents, and yet they signed uh, one of the very best of those in uh, Carlos Santana. Certainly one of the most um, – the one who probably combined uh, the best um, – who, who offered the best combination both of talent and consistency. Yeah. Uh, for the price tag. Like he just plays 160 games every year. Yeah, right. And so, and they signed him for three years, uh, $60 million, which I think was maybe, that was right about, uh, in the area that you, that you estimated in your. I think I had him at 472. So when you yeah. look at like AAV, it's higher, but it's one fewer year. So yeah, I mean, I think if you did like a, you know, a trade off, 360 and 472 are probably pretty similar for the player. Mm-hmm. But so, so the, the deal, uh, was not very surprising. But the signing team, I'm assuming, was it's, it's surprised me a little bit. Did it surprise Dave Cameron? Absolutely. Like, yeah. I like Carlos Santana. I think he was, you know, I ranked him my number one free agent bargain heading into this winter because people were expecting he was going to get 345, which didn't make any sense at all. Um, so, you know, like, I, I think Santana is a good underrated player. He's just a weird fit for the Phillies. They already have Reese Hoskins, who's a first baseman that they can stick in left field, and they, they did that in the last couple of months last year, and he wasn't terrible out there. But, like, if you look at, like, the StatCast sprint speed metric, there's exactly one player who uh, <laughs> recorded a lower sprint speed of, uh, while playing outfield than Reese Hoskins last year, and it was Matt Kemp. So if you're faster only than the worst defensive player in baseball, that's not great news. Um and the fact that they weren't willing to even play Hoskins in the outfield. No wait, is August. Matt Adams was Matt Adams involved in any of those metrics? Matt Adams was faster than Reese Hoskins. Oh really? Yeah. Name a person that's not Matt Kemp, and he played the outfield, <laughs> and he's faster than Reese Hoskins. Oh man. Um, so like you know, Hoskins could have good instincts. He could have maybe learn to run good routes, but like physically, he's just limited. So you're never going to have him be a good defensive outfielder. Um, in some sense, this is a little bit like the Cubs with Kyle Schwarber, right? Where it's like, this guy's a first baseman. You're sticking him out there because you already have a first baseman. 
but it's not great. Like, you know, Hoskins, I think, could be a better hitter than Schwarber, might be a better, like, is a better hitter than Schwarber, but I think you're limiting his value by forcing him to run around the outfield. You're also increasing his injury risk, and you're taking playing time away from a guy like Aaron Altair, who is, you know, a really interesting young outfielder who could potentially be part of your core, and the Phillies aren't in a position to necessarily capitalize on short-term value. Like, Santana's 32, 2018 wins don't matter that much to the Phillies. By 2019, he's not so much of a bargain anymore. By 2020, that contract could actually be underwater. Like, you know, not dramatically so, but it's not crazy to think that Carlos Santana is going to be, you know, Chase Headley or something where, you know, at the end of this deal, you have to pay money to get rid of him. And, uh, you know, so for the Phillies, who's, like, not really a contender this year and didn't really need a first baseman and has to displace their best young hitter and make him play the outfield in order to make room for Santana, I don't I don't get it. Like, I get the, just Carlos Santana's good. This is a good price. Let's do it. But I, I don't think I would have done this if I was the Phillies. It, wait, so, to that last point you made though, that it's a good price and therefore we're going to do it. <clears throat> yeah, I suppose is some of the logic, some of Philadelphia's logic perhaps that, uh, if it turns out either at this, uh, trade deadline or next year's trade li- deadline, if they're not competitive, that, uh, he would be, he would be relatively easy to trade. Yeah, but like, I think the reality is if you had $60 million, you could have just bought the things that you were hoping to trade for in the first place. Like, mm-hmm. the idea of paying some veteran with significant downside risk a lot of money so that you could go trade them with some money for a fringe prospect or, you know, even a decent prospect. Yeah. Like, you could have just spent that $60 million taking on a dead money contract like, uh, Jacoby Ellsbury or, you know, like, there's all this money out there. The Braves just took a whole bunch of money from the Dodgers. Like, you could have, if you had this kind of money to spend, you could have just gone to the Dodgers and said, we'll take Adrian Gonzalez and we'll take Scott Casimir and we'll take Brandon McCarthy and all we need is like Trevor Oaks and, you know, like Wilmer Font and like, you know, like some of these interesting arms who might turn into something. Like, you could have bought those prospects with this money right now. Right, but so let's. Uh, I ask you to do this sometimes. Let's work from the point of view of the uh, Phillies and uh, attribute to them uh, a sort of a set of logical decisions that they've yeah. made. What do you What do you think if you're giving them the benefit of the doubt? What do you think they've discovered? So I think if you're looking at the Phillies from the looking at this from the Phillies perspective, and you think you're going to try and sign Machado and or Harper next year, potentially Donaldson, but more likely Harper or Machado are your targets. You might have a better chance of getting in the room on that conversation if you're coming off an 82-win season than if you're coming off a 73-win season. Mm-hmm. So you can say, look, a large part of our rebuilding plan is going to get one of the five or ten best players in baseball, and we need them to choose us. Therefore, we're going to put our best foot forward to do so this year in order to get you know increase our chances of getting in that room. I mean, I think I can see the point of that. I don't know that, like, at the end of the day, um, Machado and Harper couldn't tell the difference of, like, yeah, you won five extra games because you signed Carlos Santana. Like, I think they're going to look at the team's future, and they're going to ask their representatives, like, hey, go figure out how good this team's farm system is. Go figure out how many young players they have. Like, what do we think – how well set up do we think they're going to win – you know, for the next five to ten years, which is like, you know, the duration they're going to be there. I don't think that a player like that's really going to get fooled by, hey, good job, you got over 500. You must clearly be on the doorstep of winning when it's like, well, yeah, you got over 500 by signing Pat Neshnik and Tommy Hunter and Carlos Santana and kind of pushing up your window to win a little bit sooner and maybe hurting your long-term value in order to do it. All right. So you, so you think that the general – but you don't think there's like some win threshold – 
below which a free agent would just be like, nah, I can't, I'm not going to deal with that. I mean, there's probably like, um, I mean, Don, like, like maybe an older player would deal with it, like Josh yeah. or something. I mean, I, so I think like you, you probably are in a position where if you're not winning games, you're going to lose out on those like end of career Carlos Beltran guys who it's like, I got one year left. I would chase out Lee. Like those kind of guys you're not going to get. Um, if you're signing someone to a 10 year deal or a 12 year deal or a 15 year deal, I don't think your current team matters as much as your future team. Um, and so if you, I think a large part of that pitch would be like going to Bryce Harper and saying, Hey, look, JP Crawford just won rookie of the year or turned into like a really nice young shortstop. And Reese Hoskins is a top 10 hitter in Major League Baseball. And Aaron Nola's got the curveball that like you never have to face this thing again. And like, look at what we have. And then also in our farm system, we have this and this and this and this. And we're going to spend a bunch of money, not just on you, but on these other guys. I think that pitch is really kind of what resonates when you're signing a long-term deal and not the, you know, we won 83 instead of 77 because we signed Carlos Santana and Tommy Hunter. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, I was just curious about it, obviously. Uh, I also, the team is going to have to, the, uh, sorry, the Phillies are going to have to contend with an interesting, I don't know how interesting, they have a, they have a their catcher situation is a bit difficult because uh, Jorge Alfaro, um, bad. who, he has some. He has some clear weaknesses and clear strengths. <laughs> His clear weaknesses <laughs> are being good at baseball. Well, I, I think that what isn't it, doesn't he have a rocket arm and he good raw power? Great arm. He has great he arm. He has the exact kinds of tools that make it very easy to get tricked into thinking he's good when he's not. Right. He's like if you look at there are some players. Uh, you, you know, you could take two players. You say they're both worth two wins, but some of them maybe get there by, entirely by way of tools, and some of them yeah. maybe get there by way of baseball specific skills. Yeah, Whatever it's really he, easy to look at Jorge Alfaro and be like, if this guy figures out how to hit, he's going to be amazing. The reality is, like, he's Miguel Olivo. Really? I mean, Miguel Olivo had a cannon arm, and Miguel Olivo had a lot of power, and Miguel Olivo was like fairly athletic for a catcher. Miguel Olivo is not a good player. <laughs> <laughs> so it's basically a guy who, like, well, uh, if you're being if you're being charitable, you just say like was not able to translate his physical tools into. Yeah. I think the the uh, not charitable term is tools goof. Yeah, tools goof. Well, they just well no because like there's these skills that are not as obvious to the eye, right? Like there's the things that make I don't know. You know, to make uh, Joe Panic good, right? Yeah. Like Joe Panic, Joe Panic, like by all accounts, like uh, he like shouldn't really, he shouldn't be that good yeah. as he is. I mean, and, and he's not even the best example. I mean, probably like you know, like peak Ben Zobrist is probably the best example, right? Yeah. Like all these hidden skills. Like you look at him, he's like, well, he doesn't. Let me look at his body. Like he looks like an insurance agent, yeah. and he he doesn't play shortstop right. and he doesn't really have that much power. He had a bunch of home runs. I think he had 27 home runs one season or whatever. And like, we just kind of move him around, but like everything he does, he does well. Yep. Um, whereas Alfaro is like, wow, look at that arm. Look at the power. Yeah. Um, I mean, he even runs pretty well for a catcher. Like yeah. Alfaro is like the, the classic tooled up guy who just, you know, his command of the strike zone is abominable. Yeah. So he has no options left though, is the thing. Yeah. Right. Um, and they have so the what, Cameron Rupp and Andrew Knapp, I think, yeah. ahead of him. Neither of whom I think are are um, they're not. Uh, they're backup catchers, right? Yeah. yeah. So they have three backup catchers basically. They have two backup catchers and a tools goof. 
<laughs> you don't think Alfaro would work as a backup catcher? I think in general, you you don't get that much value out of having a guy like that play twice a week. Because what he would need to play six times a week in order to like he's he's not he doesn't provide a high enough floor that on the days he's starting you're like oh yeah we're really getting some value here where he's like at least you know can calm down our pitchers and can run the staff and like control the running game and you know potentially be a good framer like I don't know that when he plays you're getting above replacement level value and also you're not developing him into anything right it's just a bad role for him I have a feeling that both um, both Cameron Rupp and Andrew Knapp batted eighths a lot this year uh, I think that's probably true. Because uh, they both recorded career-high walk rates. Yeah. Um, hmm. All right. Well, that's the, that's the Phillies. Uh, anyway, interesting moves, and it'll be, it'll be, uh, one will be curious watching them um, this season because they have a real player on their team in Carlson Tan. I mean, a real free agent, real real yeah. person to whom they've paid real money. Yeah, I mean, uh, Santana and Hoskins together should, you know, draw a lot of walks and hit some bombs and provide a reasonable offense. I just, uh, I fear for the pitchers trying to develop with Rears Hoskins playing left field regularly. All right, Dave Cameron, you have fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio. I'm happy to hear that. Okay, all right, uh, so I will say, here's what I do usually. I say thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome, Carson Sestouli. Yeah, and then I say that has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. <laughs>